Welcome to For Fintech's Sake, hosted by Zach Anderson Pettit. Zach is managing director of an accelerator called Fountain City Fintech and VP at MBKC Bank. For Fintech's Sake is a broad look at the world of fintech. Building the future of financial services requires deep understanding of both technology and finance. From the perspectives of founders, investors, and incumbents, we will explore the stories of people living at the intersection of finance and technology. All opinions expressed by Zach and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect those of MBKC Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hi, and welcome to another episode of For Fintech's Sake. My guests today are Sarah Biller and Gene Donnelly from the Fintech Sandbox. The Fintech Sandbox is a Boston-based nonprofit that helps fintech startups quote-unquote build great products. The way that they actually do that is through providing data resources. The program was founded in 2014 and provides critical data access and development resources to fintech entrepreneurs around the world. It's an incredibly important cog in the machinery of the early stage fintech ecosystem. If data is oil, the fintech sandbox is like a booster rocket for startups that need robust data to really prove out their value prop and pick up momentum. The fintech sandbox works with some incredibly impressive partners, the likes of Morningstar, Yodley, S&P, Plaid, Experian, and TransUnion on the data side, and many, many more. Also, some really interesting startups on the partnership side of things. They work with Future Fuel, HoneyFi, Pedal, and lots of others that you've seen in the news probably recently. In this interview, we cover a deep dive into the sandbox's why and how. We also cover some use cases as to how, as an entrepreneur, you may be able to work with the sandbox. We cover the data access uh, for startups, how it's provided by incumbents. There's a lot of data conversation generally. Also, we cover the importance of empathy in everything we do in these partnerships and also just in the day-to-day of working in the world of business. I really hope you enjoy this interview with Gene and Sarah from Fintech Sandbox. Sarah, do you want to give us the kind of quick background? Where'd you grow up? Kind of college days, the, the early days of Sarah's life. Oh my gosh, Zach, what a nice way to start. So I'm Sarah Biller. I am the co-founder of the FinTech Sandbox, but I started my days as a farm girl in West Virginia. And I think those are lessons that you carry with you if you believe in the power of what financial services can bring across uh, society into the economy. And so um, out of West Virginia, I came to D.C. and had a little bit um, of time in the telecommunications sector and professional services and then moved to Boston, where I ended up in life sciences, of all things. I had two startups, one a healthcare informatics company, and the second a natural product, um, which, is a, which was a drug. It's in the marketplace, um, and it looks at uh, sort of metabolic conditions. And from there, you know, that very nonlinear path brought me to Fidelity Investments, um, and that's actually where I met Gene. I feel that was one of my um, most fortuitous moments. Um, to meet Gene when we overlapped at Fidelity. But I left there um, in the wake of the credit crisis because I thought there was a better way to identify factors that were driving credit spreads um, than what we had traditionally done. And that was harkening back to my informatics days where we looked at natural language processing, we looked at large industrial web scraping tools and um, built a company around that thesis. And um, had an interesting run at it, found that State Street was interested and was so helpful to me, um, went there as their head of innovation, and in between co-founded the FinTech Sandbox. And that kind of brings us up to today, 
where I'm focused on areas related to the center of the country and how we might use fintech uh, as well as other tools to kind of tackle some of the big problems that uh, we see arising in society. What did that, did that time at State Street kind of inform you're wanting to start Fintech Sandbox or what was like the real impetus that made you kind of do this crazy thing? Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you called it crazy because I think Jean would agree. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Actually, the impetus for the Fintech Sandbox um, actually came from my startup, Capital Market Exchange or CMX. Um, At that time and even today, it was very hard to procure high quality data sets that enabled us to actually quantify our thesis. And again, remember, we were looking for um, non-financial factor data as much as we were for traditional financial data. And to be honest, it was very hard to work with the large data providers as just a small company. Even though we had raised a round of investment capital and we could pay, for instance, for our terminal, um, you know, a sales guy doesn't really want to pay attention when you just need to turn on one to two terminals when he could be selling to a larger institution with the same amount of hassle selling two under terminals. So the FinTech Sandbox was born out of that that actually true experience that as an entrepreneur, you have a hard time accessing data. Did something, uh, I mean, that totally makes sense from the entrepreneurial perspective, right? But being at State Street, did you kind of feel around and realize that like, oh, these people aren't, you know, out to get us or anything. And they do want to help if you give them an avenue to help. Well, you know, my experience at State Street, I sat on the other side of the table. I had already been an entrepreneur three times um, and banged my head up against the incumbent um, doors, you know, and, and it, and so I think we began, and I think the industry is, is also in this place where you begin to look at entrepreneurs and the innovation that's happening in this cycle outside of the four walls of, of large banks as a very promising solution. Um, and so I would say, Zach, the FinTech Sandbox came before my experiences at State Street, mm-hmm. but they, it certainly that experience of helping other entrepreneurs um, in the fintech community definitely influenced how we worked there. And I see that just across the board with other large entities. Um, we see a very, you know, it's, we're in this really interesting glide path of watching large or actually participating with large on incumbents as they're trying to figure out their own strategy for partnering with fintechs. There's no one size fits all. Um, but it certainly, they all have the basic foundational needs. They need you to understand risk, compliance. You know, you have to be able to audit your data um, and show what you did with it. Um, you know, you can't have malware, those types of things. But uh, we're in this really amazing place. Our friend Ron Suber, the chairman of Prosper, talks about this as the golden age of financial services. And I tend to agree. So one, one little more quick detour before we get to Gene, Brandeis University and FinTech Master's program kind of correlates to a lot that you were just saying about community, about kind of being in this golden age. The idea that we even have FinTech education programs is a little mind blowing to me. Um, So one, can you just kind of explain that program at Brandeis that you were involved with and kind of what value you see these kind of FinTech kind of classical fintech education angles providing? 
I was so thrilled to be on the on the ground floor as Brandeis built the first master's program for for, if you will, fintech or the digitization of financial services and sought to prepare professionals to really enter into this new cycle of the of the industry. And that's this growing intersection between your functional expertise in financial services and the application of, of technology. Um, I oftentimes tell institutions that I work with now, large incumbents, and certainly in my class, that in the future, everybody's going to be a technologist. You're just not going to come in and sort of book journal entries. You're actually going to mm-hmm. be exposed to robotic process automation in, you know, in that journal entry booking that kind of rolls up. Or if you want to look at it from the asset management arm, the application of, of gathering data and aggregating it, cleaning it, and then you know quantifying it into a trading strategy, that's really tech-driven. We no longer do that, if you will, by longhand or on Excel. And so um, what Brandeis, I think, has done, and we see a lot of um, academic institutions following suit here in the New England area where Gene and I are, we can just kind of throw a rock and hit a college like MIT or Harvard or Northeastern, Boston University. They're all developing curriculums around fintech. And it's following the same learning lessons that we had in the late 90s, where you actually had to train people to be financial engineers, right? That the idea that we could take modern portfolio theory and transform it into a degreed or accredited outcome through these master of science in finance programs or engineering has paid off in spades. And we see, I think we're going to see that again with helping individuals see themselves um, in the fintech wave that we're under. It's interesting. So from your point of view, who should be taking, like who is the ultimate person or ultimate kind of stakeholder group that should be taking advantage of these programs? Do you see any kind of, you know, I, I being in, in a bank, right? I see a lot of my uh, executive staff going to graduate school of banking and I hear that about mm-hmm. that world a lot. Do you think that eventually this will be a replacement for things like that? Um, you know, Zach, that's such a good question. Um, I'm not sure I think it would be a replacement for these very focused functional areas like, you know, the graduate school of banking, but I certainly see it being augmenting the skill set. Because if you take that thesis that I just said to you that in the near term, everybody's going to have to know how to use technology and financial services, um, that you really do need some practical training. A lot of these things eventually you know, or in the open source movement, they're going to be drop and drag. But there is implications for how we use technology, not only to improve our returns, you know, manage our downside risk, but also a lot of the programs have focused, I know I teach it in my class, the ethical implications, for instance, of now we've trained you how to code up, you know, artificial intelligence and use data sets. But should you be? And what moral obligation and fiduciary duty do you have to understand and unpack that black box of artificial intelligence as you make, you know, arguably one of the most important decisions in anyone's life, which is their financial outcomes and their financial well-being. So I definitely think there's a true place here for everybody to take these courses. Um, And I think it just goes beyond what we might contemplate as we think about, you know, sort of rote fintech. That's a, that's a big old layer cake of just fascinating stuff. <laughs> I, really, like, I really want to keep going on that. 
but it is time to transfer over to one of my favorite people in the world yeah. to see at fintech conferences gene donnelly yeah. so gene let's get your background out of the way so we can keep talking about the the fintech stuff um and i don't mean out of the way in a quick way you have a fascinating background so let's dig into it a little bit um but maybe quickly kind of the same question just tell me about your childhood and who is gene i'm originally from just outside of boston so um grew up locally here and um uh, actually trained as an engineer, so uh, went to uh, uh, engineering school, uh, spent my first uh, part of my career actually as an aircraft engineer, um, working for GE Aircraft, so kind of, you know, cutting my chops on early days of programming, very different than I think, uh, you know, what's done today. I think I learned like Fortran 44 or Fortran 77, I don't know things that aren't even used anymore today, but, um, but it was a really good way to kind of understand businesses and systems and enterprises and GE was a great training, you know, um, for kind of the, the different aspects of how do you uh, grow a business, how do you address problems and, and moving that way. And I was fortunate enough while at GE to then moved into GE Capital, into the actual insurance space, um, where a lot of the, the things that folks said were like, hey, you seem really nice, but you know absolutely nothing about insurance. It was like, yeah, that's true. Um, but really, I think what it was is, you know, at the time, GE was big on, you know, process improvement. And one of the things was, how do we take a lot of um, our financial services practices that historically maybe sales has been re you know, very relationship-based, and how do we quantify that? And how do we kind of quantify the voice of the customer? Um, which is something that's kind of followed, you know, kind of throughout, financial services is, you know, how do you make sure you keep the customer at the center and the focus of what you're doing from a product uh, perspective and service pers perspective. And um, so from there, uh, actually had the opportunity to work uh, at first with Fidelity while still at GE. We um, uh, launched a, a product, uh, a white label product that was uh, underwritten by GE, but on Fidelity paper when it came to annuities because they were one of our biggest clients in the annuity space. Um, and so I got to work with people there and actually what it took to bring a product to market, which was pretty uh, exciting. And then um, went to grad school and then when came back, actually came and worked for Fidelity. Um, and then at that point was able to work um, in the asset management space. And that's where I met Sarah, uh, which was great, which was really fascinating to actually learn more about kind of the underpinnings of a lot of mutual funds and how that business worked. And, um, uh, and that sort of thing. And then from there, I actually thought I would try to get back to my clean tech roots or, or tech roots and uh, work for Enernoc, um, which is a demand response energy company for a few years, which was interesting um, in terms of seeing what, uh, how uh, clean tech had evolved and changed and actually utilizing uh, platforms um, you know, to collect data around energy and then how they would use that to then determine demand and, and how to respond um, to that. So that was pretty fascinating to take that sort of viewpoint. And then now as we look at financial services and how that's evolving um, from that perspective, you know, there's, there's a lot of similar applications. Um, and then um, was fortunate enough to uh, run into Sarah uh, still while I was there. And then um, she told me about uh, this opportunity that they were looking to, to build the FinTech Sandbox. And I was able to be a part of that. Your background is like a big spaghetti of complex systems. It seems like if you throw Gene into like anything that has 65 stakeholders, 15 different kinds of software, and like 14 <laughs> kinds of uh, hardware, and it's like, here, figure it out, make all of this work together. It just seems to work. 
Um, I'm curious specifically about your time at GE. I noticed you had two black belts. Um, so I'm curious, what was the process of going through the Six Sigma learning experience? Like, what's it like being a black belt, Gene? Yeah, right. I know. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not, you know, it doesn't really do me any good, you know, if I'm on a dark street corner late at night, right. but because <laughs> I can wow them with statistics. Yeah. But it's a well-lit boardroom. It really helps, right? <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it was actually, I was very fortunate. Um, so I started the Six Sigma when it just rolled out. I was at Aircraft Engines and got to be in one of the first uh, wave of black belts that um, they were, as they were rolling it out throughout the company and um, and really saw the power of, you know, how to take data, even in an industry like Aircraft Engines, how to look at machinery and how it was used. And say, hey, if we want this to perform better and at higher levels, you know, how we can use the data that we're seeing in order to help us predict what the issues could be and what the breakpoints are and how to do hypothesis testing and, and really how to move that forward. So I think that's something that stuck with me, you know, to today of, you know, then how you take that from that sort of environment, apply it in, a finance, in more of a services environment um, where you just have to make sure you don't have the same assumptions, obviously, and how you look at the data and how you... You know, you take that combination of what is the data, but then also what you know, um, and to marry it together to really add value. And I think that's where, you know, like, so the, the one thing um, and the one danger that even uh, GE had in the beginning was kind of forgetting the customer um, of, like, how you actually bring the customer into how you evaluate uh you know, the, the, the problems and the issues that you have. Um, I know when I was at GE, they, they had this thing, they had a kind of update, Six Sigma to call it wing to wing, um, because they were so focused on how they could take an engine off a wing, fix it, you know, and have it back, you know, within like, you know, the shortest time period, you know, as possible and a quick turnaround time. But what they didn't account for were things that they didn't control, like the shipping. So someone's like, well, that's great that you can turn around an engine in five days or four days and you've got it down consistently to that. But it still takes, you know, the trucking company three days to get it back to my plane and get it on the plane. So, you know, really having that viewpoint of what, you know, the customer sees and what their experience is, um, is really critical to ensure is in the data as well. That's, that's fascinating. It seems like, I mean, just it taught you how to think from a first principles perspective. And then you've just like leveraged that almost throughout the rest of your career, right? Like never get too close to a problem, generally try and understand all the stakeholders, everything else. It seems like the, the learnings there have definitely leveraged themselves long-term, it seems like. Yeah, I also think it's important too, because I, I also go back to like my, here's my dad's advice in college of getting through it of like, you know, how do you eat an elephant? There's always the question. It's one bite at a time. Mm -hmm. Right. So at the same time, you have to be careful that you don't get, you know, analysis paralysis by the way, well, I've got to get the stable or I've got to get this, I've got to collect this, but actually figuring out a, a path forward um, in order to, to be able to move and to make an impact. Um, and I think that's, that's one of those things that that balance of complex systems, but also figuring out a way to move forward is, is how you see success. And that's how like, you know, Syntex startups, how do they move forward given the, the universe that we're in today is really about making those choices. Well, speaking of speaking of elephants, let's talk about the the what has become an elephant in the fintech sandbox. Um, so let's talk about kind of the inception, and not just the why, but the how. One of the things that I'm most curious about is how you got these different kind of you know 
for the most part, older kind of incumbent uh, stakeholders to open up their data to even think about this thing being something they would do. So maybe first principles, what is it? What was the idea? And second, you know, how did you do it? It was amazing to me that you had uh, parties that were Sarah's of the world who had, you know, it was a serial entrepreneur. Um, and we also had a John Fawcett, who was another uh, entrepreneur, um, as well as folks who kind of looked at the ecosystem as it was like five years ago. So David Jagan from UNF Prime and, and the venture world. And then you, you did have a couple of incumbents like Fidelity who said, yeah, you know, we really want to get the new technologies into financial services. And this is a barrier, you know, this access to data is a barrier that you don't necessarily see in other, um, you know, industries. And, you know, if you think about early days of AI, if, if someone had a really interesting algorithm they were building, you know, to, to actually access the data could be really hard. But it's actually easier to go into government <laughs> in order to get data from government applications than it was, you know, for financial services data. So I think really, you know, having the core people at the table who saw this issue and, and really figured out a way of how to address it and kind of using, you know, their relationships. To, to be fair, and the strength of those relationships to really get other people to the table to listen to the story and to, you know, and to understand and share, you know, kind of that, that need and concern and, and figure out a way to overcome it. I don't know, Sarah, if you would like look at it differently, but. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's that, Gene, and I also think that's a, it's an interesting proof point for that thesis that at first any good idea seems crazy, mm. you know, and mm -hmm. And this certainly was a crazy idea, right? That we would go and that we would contemplate asking organizations whose revenue was dependent on, you know, keeping this data very tight to the vest, selling it in an environment where they could control access points and price and cost and asking them actually to open it up, to really open up the doors to entrepreneurs who were, we believed were going to do things that were creative and different. And to Jean's point, really, alter the trajectory of the financial services industry. Um, and so when it happened, I think everybody was shocked that all these people came around the table and piled in and said, you know, we can, yes. Um, and, but now, you know, in hindsight, it looks like it was a pretty good idea to enable creative, thoughtful, driven entrepreneurs to build new technology on top of data um, that, that gave a meaningful outcome to the industry. You're right. In hindsight, it makes so much sense. I, it seems like such a no-brainer to me having gotten into this world, you know, 18 months ago, something like that. But talking to Mike, your uh, director of partnerships a little bit before this, he was kind of speaking to how unclear it was that this would necessarily be, you know, have the outcome that it has had. So cheers to the two of you for all the work you've done to get it to where it is. Yeah. Um, Maybe from there, something that kind of kind of help our listeners understand truly how fintech sandbox engages with startups. Um, if there's like one specific fintech startup that you could use as a use case, um, and kind of how you were able to work with them to provide some data, like if you know there is a founder listening, how they can wrap their head around potentially working with fintech sandbox. I can give a, an example. Um, so. You know, one of our, it's, it's one that we're very proud of. So one of our early um, startups is a company called Elson um, that's based here in Boston that had a high performance uh, computing engine. 
um, you know, for quants that they had built. So they came out of Northeastern, uh, a couple of young guys and, and really, you know, they had done some internships, I think at Goldman and a, and a couple other places and, uh, said, you know, there really should be a, a better and faster way to be able to process data to run models, uh, than Excel, <laughs> right. For whether you're in a hedge fund or otherwise when you're looking at investing. And so, um, they really had this uh, pretty, you know, incredible idea of, of how to build um, the capability to, to be able to, to process that faster uh, from a data perspective. And so they um, uh, had built a, a product and were really at that point of um, wanting to continue to build and to try to get it to demo it in front of institutions and, and, and the, you know, the users that they wanted. And, you know, for them at the time, you know, they hadn't really raised much money in Part of what they were looking to do was to use the same high quality data that the institutions they wanted to sell to were using. So that's like, you know, uh, at the time, Thomson Reuters, which is now Refinitiv or FactSet or you know, some of the other large capital markets providers. And, um, and the cost of that data would be really high. Not only that, but some of the different institutions, one might use S&P, one might use, you know, Thomson Reuters, one might use FactSet. So by coming to the sandbox, what they were able to do is build connectors to all of them. Hmm. So that way then they could say to each institution, oh, you use that data? Oh, yeah, we, we use that data. So it actually kind of gave them a leg up in terms of how to get the attention of the institutions and their target customers um, because they had the, the same access to data. And then instead of spending that money on data to kind of build to, they were able to hire an engineer literally that's what they did with the money they were going to they had you know um marked for it to actually hire an engineer to continue the build of the product right in the early days so i think you know that's that's kind of the the start of that sort of journey and then what that led to was then um you know further you know definition of their product adding you know the, the features um and then actually working with um, thomson reuters who at the time was thinking about building a similar product internally that would have been a two-year turnaround in order to build. And then after working with Elson, um, they were able to say, hey, why don't we co-develop this product together, taking your platform as kind of the, um, the core of what we want to do. And so they were able to get a product to market in nine months instead of two years. So that's kind of like one of those great stories of it helped the startup early on. And then that relationship then brought you know, um, Elton to the markets that Thomson Reuters was serving. So talk about getting in front of customers as well um, through the, the distribution network that they had. So. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> a win-win seems like a, like an understatement in that. That's an unbelievable story. Did most of them kind of grow up with these groups? How does that kind of work as these startups actually mature? Yeah, I mean, I think what we, we see a lot of is, you know, startups coming and it's as much about understanding how to work with data partners that I think Sarah talked about a little bit earlier, right? A lot of large institutions that are data providers aren't used to dealing with startups. Yeah. So they, they also come to us to understand how to do that and how to interact. Um, you know, a lot of times I, I talk to startups and I'm like, all right, well, you know, what data do you need? And they're like, well, we're trying to decide between this, this, and this. I was like, well, actually, the sandbox is really good because you can get access to all three data sets and do your own kind of internal bake-off to decide, you know, which, which data makes the most sense for your tool, which one's going to give you the most benefit, which one's, you know, from your perspective is the easiest to work with. Um, and, and you can kind of figure it out that way. 
Um, I also think as we're, you know, expanding, let's just be on capital markets, there's also, you know, the need, you know, we see a lot of you know, folks that are focused on the data access side and the aggregation side. So as you are trying to build applications for consumers, there's a lot of other questions that you're asking around, you know, data and data access and, and how do I build that kind of personalized viewpoint, um, whether it's for a consumer or, or even for like a research analyst, right? So how, how do I actually pull together um, the different data streams in order to, to have the, the, the best kind of um, uh, UI, you know, for them. And so part of it is you get the data, you know, to kind of build, but then it helps you kind of continue to reform your, for your beta testing, what your, you know, front end looks like, how does it fit in in the workflow, whether it's retail facing or institutional facing and what that workflow looks like. So we, we tend to see people come from, a, you know, that perspective as well of trying to understand what else they need to uh, think about and not just from a core engine, you know, running perspective as well. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned the 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 incumbent kind of the the larger entity, right? The data provider um, tends to not totally understand how to work with startups. I 100% makes sense is true. Something I've noticed is that startups in a lot of cases don't understand how to work with those groups, right? Even just startups having conversations with me sitting inside of a bank, you know, trying to develop a partnership or whatever it is. Are there any things that you just kind of see over and over and over again that you wish that founders understood in this world of data, I guess? Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, part <laughs> of it is, is just, under, you know, if, if they, and, and, well, to be fair, Sarah should answer this because she's, she's actually gone through it of like the learning of, of how to work with data partners. Yeah, but Gina, I'm, I'm intrigued by your chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Zach, one thing I would, I would like to, Gene will add the substance here. Um, I'll add the anecdotal observation. Um, I think founders and, you know, as a founder, I can say this about my own personality. We work at a pace and with a level of urgency that is not going to be matched by the incumbent. Yep. And, okay. and, you know, and I think understanding um, until we get to a place where we do meet in the middle, which I, I think increasingly is happening, um, there's an adage that asks, you know, ask the question, will the, will, the, will the startup survive long enough on its limited capital and its capabilities, you know, to get to market and achieve distribution, or will the incumbent figure out what the startup is doing and, you know, and get to market first? And, and that tension of pace and time we need to find a way to resolve it. I don't expect the founders to, to actually respect the, you know, the, the difficulty of, of the big moving the big ships. But I think we have to figure out a way to, when we go in as founders, to talk to the institutions in the terms they understand and help them see where there is bridges we can build, overcoming interoperability, really, you know, positioning ourselves as a partner in that learning pace as opposed to, you know, the opposite, which is oftentimes just kind of throwing our hands up and disgust. So that might be might be a place for founders to start. But Jean, your thinking here, what made you laugh about Zach's question? Yeah, no, I mean, I guess to be fair, it is probably rooted in the same issue of, you know, that, that asymmetry of like how to move forward. Because I, I think what happens is that a data partner, you know, they're looking at it like, this is my baby, my data. Do I give it to you? Are you worthy? Right. And I think a lot of times it starts like, yeah, I'm worthy. Give it to me. I'm moving on to the next thing. You know, I'm like, 
versus understanding like they view this as a long-term relationship. It's never, they don't view it as just six months and then they're done. You know, from an incumbent's perspective, they're, you know, and the, the smart ones, you know, like the, the large data partners who are looking to see what the future is, not just the sale, right? It's really like, hey, I'm willing to give it to a startup who um, I don't necessarily know if they're going to be successful or not, but I'm willing to take a risk on them, you know, based upon who they are and who's backing them. And so for a startup to, to appreciate that, so even if they sometimes what happens is a startup, you know, gets an intro to a data partner and then they disappear. And then we have a call with the data partner who's like, uh, I don't know what happened to them. You know, we wanted to start. And then because, you know, startups are small and agile, they're, you know, working on something else at the moment and yep. trying to come back to it. And so I think it's just keeping in touch and just being, you know, because at the end of the day, these are relationships. And so just being honest, you know, with the data partner saying, hey, I'm sorry. You know, I'm going to have to table this for a month. Is it okay if we engage, you know, next month? You know, I do still really value what you do versus kind of some of them just like, saying, yeah, no, not interested anymore. And you're like, whoa, wait a second. You understand the opportunity that you have here. And, you know, it is relationships. And I do think the industry at the end of the day is fairly small. So you're going to, you know, run into people again. Um, and, and understanding how what you're doing today will impact how they view you in the future. Hmm. Have you two seen uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? I know this is random, but I'm curious. I have. You have? Yeah. Yeah. Years you know, ago. Years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know the, the, the point of view gun? And then the, the point of view gun comes out and the guy shoots a woman and she's like, I'm already a woman. I already have that. Like, you know, it's basically just an empathy gun. It sounds like we just need an <laughs> empathy gun, right? Like at the end of the yeah. day, all of this just sounds like you need to be empathetic of the person on the other side of the table, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So with all of this, right, you're talking about kind of data shifting and the way that it works inside of companies. So much of that has to do with understanding the way that regulations in a lot of cases are shifting and the way that policy is shifting. And I ended up having an incredibly random conversation uh, yesterday, actually, on a podcast that I was supposed to do with somebody that ended up adding a third person who was actually the CTO of uh, the Obama campaign in 2012. And we got down this rabbit hole of just data ownership and how much kind of just how much founders and specifically fintech founders should be paying attention to policy and paying attention to regulation and even paying attention to elections. So I'm curious from, you know, two people that kind of live in this world and, you know, Boston is definitely a, a hub for a lot of that power. How do you think about founders paying attention to politics, paying attention to regulation, obviously that part, the regulation piece is important, but kind of extrapolating through the broader policy world, where should founders be spending their time or ignoring that? I guess I'd start off with Gene and I just had the pleasure of attending an innovation conference put on by the FDIC, um, which as you know, governs you, Zach, in your, in your day job. Um, and yeah. And, you know, I think what I was, um, what I came away with, I don't think either of us knew what to expect. And um, I, I, I personally came away with the sense that the regulators are understanding to a degree um, the necessity of, of working with the fintech community. Um, it's, although we didn't learn from any of the agencies that um, sort of sponsoring or accelerating a fintech um, ecosystem uh, and creating better competitiveness across the U.S. was part of their um, agency's remit. 
I think what we heard through between the lines was that they're interested in that. And so it's a bit of a sea change, I think, from what I would have thought as myself as a cap markets entrepreneur, where the regulators come out on the adoption and use of new technologies, particularly in investments and risk management, and um, in no means thinking, you know, ever would have thought that um, an agency that manages our community banking, you know, what's happening on Main Street would actually take the tact of looking at um, the fintech community positively, but they are. And so I encourage, or I would encourage the entrepreneurs to be aware of where, what's happening, um, both on the positive and then also on the potentially challenging. And Gene, I'm sure you have a view on this on sort of where we're heading in the U.S. in our federated system around data privacy um, and the, you know, the extensibility of what that, for instance, legislation might do to a startup and how they need to code for it. Yeah, yeah, I think we're we're right there now. I mean, you could look to Europe with, um, you know, the dawn of the GDPR, you know, um, requirements have been in place, and now California with the data privacy, we're we're seeing a lot more attention to you know data policy, and I do think it's been you know it, it it's incumbent on uh, startups that they have to understand this and they have to be aware of the implications. You know, I think. What's always been difficult is with the number of uh, regulators, seven to eight, depending upon the type of, you know, uh, financial services you're providing that you can, you know, um, have to work with. It, it is very, very complex. But I, I do think, you know, historically, maybe startups might not say, well, I'll worry about that when I get a few customers or I'll worry about it at this point in time. And I think we're starting to see the need to be aware of what is coming down the pike earlier because it will affect how you build your product. You know, if you are now required to be able to forget, you know, um, a, a customer when they ask you to because they no longer want to use your product and take it out of everywhere you have it and anywhere you've shared data about that person, whether it's anonymized or not, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a challenge. But I also think it's an opportunity because everybody is facing it. So for some really smart entrepreneurs, it's a huge opportunity of helping the industry, you know, meet these requirements and, and understand you know, how they're moving forward. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be, I mean, I, we just had the announcement here. I think Northeastern University is going to use Facebook data um, uh, in one of the first ones, you know, to actually get access to that data around the election to, to use it for research purposes. So I think we're going to start to see some really interesting um, outcomes, you know, from that of, of ways people can frame it. And I, you know, it, I, we could totally geek out and say when you get into these sorts of things, it's not just absorbing the data and data governance, but then also the decision making, which could get us to quantum. And then use the quantum computing <laughs> and uh, tech. <laughs> so, which I think is is pretty will be pretty awesome. So, so that that last point I think kind of leads us to this leveling the playing field conversation, right? Some people kind of getting into the financial system, some people not having that because of different barriers and a lot of those barriers being kind of data related. So something that, something that I've realized just kind of growing up in this a little bit, when I started my career uh, in FinTech, I started at Bloom, like I've kind of told you two about, right? So robo-advisor uh, regulated by the SEC and coming out of college, I was like, all that matters is retirement, right? Because it's the thing that's right in front of my face. If, if people aren't saving anywhere near enough for retirement, 
and then I move into the banking sector and then I discover that nobody's actually saving any money for anything in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. right? So we go towards, yeah. I go from, oh crap, retirement, we're screwed to, oh crap, nobody, you know, 47% of Americans don't have $400 in their bank account. And then when you actually dig deeper into it, you realize that that's not even the root problem, right? The root problem is further on the data side, further on the digital identity side, probably. So what, what do you see that needs to change and what do, what kind of heartens you that you do see changing um, that is going to lead to a more financially level playing field, I guess? We actually that grapple with this quite a bit, believe it or not, as Jean kind of alluded to with the um, emerging strategy at FinTech Sandbox around helping entrepreneurs who are focused on consumers. You really have to contemplate exactly what you just talked about, right? How do we unpack this very um, complex place where not everyone is on a level playing field with financial services? And I've come to this kind of myself Noodle, I've noodled on it and I'm not completely sure I've come to a conclusion, but I'll say I've come to a conclusion with, for myself that we have, at least in the U.S., access is, when we ask questions of ourselves, which we have for years about making financial services accessible um, across all segments of the population, I think we may be in a place now where we should not focused wholly on access, but also this notional idea of available, because what technology has been for thousands of years good for has been the ability to reach new populations at scale and profitably. And it's, it, I think it's incumbent upon, incumbent upon us as entrepreneurs and as data providers to recognize that we need to transition from our one size fits all financial services product development cycle to a much more personalized service base where we're making available both products and services to individuals where they are in their life cycle and where they are in their socioeconomic status. And I think that in necessitates a sea change in every area of financial services from how we issue credit, to where we issue credit, to when we issue credit, to how we contemplate how people save, how we build new investable products like ETFs that fit the needs of a, of, of a population that may only have you know, $7 one week to save and maybe 50 the next week, that volatility idea as opposed to a rote extraction out of our paychecks. So, I think we're in we're we're all in at the sandbox to contemplate how we can enable entrepreneurs through the right data sets to look at this next generation of financial services, but it's not it's not gonna be easy for sure. Well said. Do you feel like we're kind of at a point of the more conversations we can have about this, the more that we can get this to the top of folks? minds is really kind of, do you feel like we're at a conversation stage or an action stage? And if we are at an action stage, what are some of the actions that bankers, community bankers, fintech startups, what, what are the things that we should be taking action on and doing day to day? I, I want Jean to weigh in here. I just want to make an opening kind of comment and then maybe we noodle on this because it's a very important question, Zach. We are at the place where we need to be changing the narrative about financial services, focusing 
on the underserved and the underbanked and the and the you know emerging businesses that is good business there's a lot of opportunity financial opportunity in serving this population and so when we sit down at the table i think everybody has to already have accepted the idea that we are living in this 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 incredible place of a like it's a big market it's not just a small pie and you got to keep carving it up which has historically been right what we think about competitive marketplace and so um to answer your question i think there's one step before we sit at the table and that that is almost like a point of education or a point of general understanding that this is a really good business opportunity to focus here on these these folks and businesses and communities um, at, at a moment of transition. But Jean, I could talk all day, as you know. <laughs> I have a question that fits what we're talking about. Yeah, no, I, I mean, obviously, I, I totally am in sync with, with Sarah on, on this. I, I do think the narrative for people is changing because as she alluded to you know when you talk about that pie i think what's happened is a lot of the large institutions are looking and saying yeah we've got to figure out a way to make the pie bigger and what that means is you know as you have a growing divide between the, the folks that have and have not it's really looking at well those folks how do we there are people there and i guess what it comes back to the consumer there is a person right there and meeting the person where they're at to provide those tools to help them engage actually helps the you know institutions helps the whole system um, you know from that perspective of kind of you know being able to save and I think there's changing the narrative and there's also some of the perceptions of you know there's two two areas I see first there's the intersection of financial services um, with our health right so health and wealth like wellness right being a real way of moving forward which everyone can identify with especially in the u.s right because it doesn't matter you know for, for many people who are middle class or even upper middle class fears about the future of your health and the impact on your wealth are are massive and vice versa so as we move together on on that side it really does change the narrative even beyond just typical financial services of what are those products uh, insurance products otherwise that need to exist to meet people where they are um, but then i think it also you know you look at it of um, what does the definition of a financial stable person look like so if we're trying to help people make savings and as Sarah talked about that volatility like how that's okay like just be, we don't want you know the mindset of a bank or something is to be like well I helped that person save a thousand dollars but then they spent it like yeah that's okay that they spent it that was kind of the point right mm -hmm. if it's gold-based savings and it's, it's other things it is that that money is moving and they are it is being used for the needs that a person has as opposed to assuming that they're going to figure out other ways to put that money to, to you know, uh, to keep that money there and do other things. So I think it's really kind of that intersection of, of those two aspects of changing mindsets of, um, you know, how we look at financial services. It honestly amazes me how much of this can be extrapolated up to empathy and just like putting yourself in the shoes of yeah. someone else and kind of understanding where they're coming from. It just blows my mind. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's actually a, a decent little transition. So speaking of individuals, speaking of individualizing experiences, I'm so, we didn't really talk about this previously, and I'm super curious what you two think. Um, so Sally Krawcheck from Ellevest. Are you both familiar with Ellevest, I'm guessing? 
Yep. Purpose Built for Women takes into account a lot of uh, just different economic factors that exist for women uh, in life, um, different than men, whereas, you know, every robo-advisor, every financial advisor in the world, for the most part, kind of ignores those factors. Um, so just setting the stage for the listeners. But I'm curious, you know, that exists in the world of robo-advice. It exists from the world of banking. I haven't seen a ton of that in kind of consumer fintech. And as you are starting to play more in the world of consumer fintech, especially on the banking side, do you think that there's room slash is it a good idea for more things like that? Um, you know, maybe if it's, you know, for different genders, if it's for different races, if it's for different, you know, geographic areas, do you think that trying to customize and understand more of these individualistic humans and building products around them is a good idea? Or do you think that creates more disaggregation of our economy? My first reaction is like, it's like any industry that you look at, right? You have, um, and especially given our, where we're at, right? So there's the opportunity for personalization for the person, for any individual where they are, right? And, and we're demanding that, like, look at our cell phones, look at everything we do, right? Everyone's demanding that, that hyper-personalization of services. So I think you're going to see an evolution. And, and I have seen a few um, on the consumer side for FinTech, um, you know, for women and for, for others that are kind of looking at this. Um, I do think there's back to, you know, we talked about it at the beginning, um, you need to be aware of kind of any bias that could be being created by only looking at certain groups and excluding other groups. Mm -hmm. So from a longer term perspective, I, I do think, you know, that there could be a concern about the products that are developed. And if they're done in isolation, without looking at other populations, then you can run into the same problems, you know, that, that you have today, um, you know, with, with just looking at the overall um, trend too. So I think there's, there's power in kind of um, looking at both um, would be my, you know, thoughts on it versus, you know, eventually what also happens is then things come back together, right? So then there's consolidation in markets given different economic outcomes as well. But that's my two cents. Yeah. Yeah, I, I go back and forth with that because we know mathematically um, a cross-sectional representation of any sort of population matters. Um, the strength of steel matters because it has diverse um, composition, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's better that way. There, there are certainly unique and individual needs that that whole sort of group, those groupings that you, you listed have. Um, and I'm keen to see um, a future where sort of you can access the, you know, the tools you need to understand your financial well-being um, that are, you know, that as Jean mentioned, I think it's coming. I'm almost certain it's coming that are personalized to who you are and what you do and your unique sort of um, financial situation. And, you know, you can't criticize like you just can't find any place to be critical of people who are trying to do things that advance um, advance others in the financial space. I think for too long we've been excluding um, certain categories of populations. And so, you know, I hope we continue down this path. And as Jean said, she's absolutely correct. It'll it'll reconverge um, eventually. But, uh, but we have to be sensitive to the fact that we don't, I don't mean to echo Gene, sorry, Gene, I wish I had an original thought here, yes. but on, you can't, you really can't um, create any sort of um, return or risk model if you just look at sort of, you know, one segment of the population. That's dangerous. 
it is a very dynamic subject. So I, re I really appreciate both of you kind of sharing. It is, it is a slightly awkward one too. Um, and of course it's me, so I'm not going to let you get away from the awkward conversation too quickly. Um, so I do have one more that is again, a little bit of an awkward conversation, but I think it's a really important one to have. And that is just diversity in FinTech. Um, kind of specifically on this call, candidly me being a male and you two being females. Um, my question is more so through the vein of women in FinTech. And it's not even really a well-formed question, um, but it's just kind of more of being aware of how we live in the world as a, you know, fintech is definitely male dominated. Um, the bathroom lines are depressing and there's no lines for the women. So it's, it's just a confusing thing. Um, so the question, <laughs> the, the question is. The bladder uh, control. That's called bladder control. Is then. that what it is? <laughs> uh, well, we're not doing yeah. well as a group of men. Um, what, what do you wish, if anything, do you wish that men kind of took into account about this world of fintech when it comes to engaging and getting women more involved? What do you wish we did more of? What do you wish, um, were more con like conversations that were being have being had more regularly questions being asked, um, level us up a little bit in terms of just our awareness of, you know, the world, I guess. I'll start with just an anecdotal observation because I get to see, and so does Jean, a, a tremendous amount of entrepreneurs and institutions. And Zach, um, what's, what's been increasingly impressed upon me is that when you look across an audience, you actually do see a lot of women in fintech. Um, it's not by any means equal, but there's a, there's a significantly decent representation just mm -hmm. by the fact that you're talking to the two of us, right? Yeah. Um, might give you some, some understanding of that sample size. And what I have kind of seen increasingly is that when you, when you talk to the young women who are in FinTech, um, or even the women our age in FinTech, um, they're very interested in solving complex problems. Um, they are less interested in slapping on a really pretty user interface onto an existing closed loop system. Um, and using the old rails and the old pipes. They want to focus on things that feel meaningful. Mm -hmm. Relief of student debt, how we can channel the capital markets to be more positively inclined to reward companies who treat the environment better. Um, you know, and so you see, I see a lot of young women tackling problems that I think we all can rally around and it's, you know, it's no offense to anyone who wants to put a, you know, really nice user interface on top of some existing systems, but that's my observation. My challenge in, in this environment that we're in is, is that we have a true and persistent funding gap for those, not for those women. And then you layer on the fact that they're soft, they're challenged, you know, they're challenging the status quo with big problems and it gets even more difficult. And so I really think that we have a voice here to begin to put capital against these women. We know that women, when they're given capital, are so much more efficient. They produce dollar, you know, dollar for dollar of investment capital, a lot more top line results and a lot more traction in the marketplace, like literally like 2x. Um, than right now, the other cohort of, of um, entrepreneurs. And so I just really, I really challenge us to begin to right size where capital at risk is going, um, particularly in FinTech, where we know that these young women are, are solving problems that are more than just problems of the purse. 
Um, and so I'm very excited about what the future holds because there are so many women just like Jean and I uh, trying to work um, and use the power of financial services to affect change. Let me, let me lean into that uh, kind of inspirational note with one last question. The other half of Fountain City Fintech, her name is Megan Darnell. She's the program manager. Um, and one question that I always try and ask whenever I'm having people that she kind of knows and looks up to, and she is aware of both of you and thinks you're both badasses. So the question is, what advice do you have for young women in fintech as just kind of a closer? I guess one of the things I, I would say is... Um, don't walk away angry from a conversation unless you've figured out a way to learn something from it. Hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of opportunities to kind of shut down when you have a conversation with someone who's looks at you and said, Oh, it's a woman. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, engage. Um, but to actually kind of be persistent and to, to kind of get an understanding, at least get some grain of, of truth or fact or something that will help you move forward out of it. Um, as opposed to just kind of saying, well, I guess I won't talk to anybody, you know, in that area anymore because they're looking at things this way. So to really take that, you know, that, that typical stereotype that someone puts you in and uh, kind of turn it on it on its head and, and use it to, to your advantage of not putting others into those, those same boxes um, and, and not answering questions. Um, uh, a friend of mine said, you know, who is an only daughter, um, who's, you know, was playing ball with her dad. She was younger than the two brothers who kept like, you know, running and getting the ball. Um, you know, her dad always said to her, get the ball. And you know, she'd be like, oh, come on, Kate, get the ball. And it was just more a matter of whatever's in your way, you go after it and you get it. And kind of just took that attitude, you know, through her career um, in, in terms of how she really looked at how you go after things and just continue to move forward. That's awesome. <laughs> Sarah, anything from you? Oh, I love the chase the ball analogy. I know that woman too. <laughs> one of my favorites. She knocked her brothers down, by the way, to get the ball. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, Zach, I, I take that sort of being in the game very seriously. The metaphor that Jean just suggested to young women, like really take your seat at the table and be in the game. And I would just add to it, have your voice when you're there, you know, be very conscious of the fact that you have something to say. I think that's been a, a perennial challenge. And so, um, you know, develop a narrative, you know, you are the best person to solve the problem. That's why you're at the table. And so um, that's my sort of uh, extension to being in the game and catching the ball um, is actually, you know, when you have the ball in your hand, know what you're going to say next. Because um, narratives matter right now the story we're telling about the future of financial services will impact our ability to believe and then actually do and transform. And so I think it's really cool that you've asked both of us to be here today. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sarah. That is a fantastic, you, you just did my job for me. That is a fantastic note to end on. Quickly, before we hop off, um, best place to find more information about FinTech Sandbox and best place to get a hold of the two of you fintechsandbox.org is, uh, is where you can learn more and, uh, and I think my email information is there. And uh, there at that info at fintechsandbox.org they, they would pass me an email or I'm really reactive on LinkedIn. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Jean and Sarah. I wanted to save my editorializing for the end. Three quick things. One, empathy over everything. 
we've realized over and over again, and we've heard it in a number, a number of these interviews, is that incumbents rarely understand the status quo of a startup. Number one, you're assumed dead. Number two, you're often running out of cash. Number three, things are regularly on fire, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a two-way street. Startups generally don't grok the point of view of an incumbent. It really requires both sides working to understand where the other is coming from. If you're in a startup working to understand where the incumbent's coming from, doing the reading, doing the listening, whatever work is necessary, doing the talking to other humans is incredibly important. And if you're in, in an incumbent's shoes, similarly, do the work to figure out what it's like to actually work inside of a startup. There's an unbelievable amount of content out there that gives you very clear idea of what these people are going through day in and day out. Nothing matters as much as empathy is what I've realized uh, after seven episodes now. Second, if you've spent a lot of time around an entrepreneurial ecosystem, you've probably met your fair share of community organizers, quote unquote, or entrepreneurial evangelists, quote unquote. Whatever they call themselves, it often begs a question, what is it you say you do here? There's generally not a great answer. One of my favorite things about the FinTech Sandbox is that they actually have an answer and they're not really part of that group. It's truly a concrete, quantifiable piece of value that they're providing to the startups that they work with. They're not just trying to kind of prop up a geographic area in a second tier city or anything like that. They're really doing the work to aggregate a piece of value, the data, aggregate a group of partners, all of the incumbents and kind of established data providers, and also the startups, bring them together and create value through this platform. It's really a model that I hope a lot of entrepreneurially minded nonprofits start taking a look at because it's truly providing value. It's not doing a panel that hopefully someone learns from. It's not ethereal. It's very clear and it's quantitative and it's concrete. Third and last, we come back to following and understanding regulations over and over and over again. As we heard in this interview, quote unquote, I'll worry about it when I get a few customers is no longer an acceptable sentence for any founder to utter. Understanding the regular, regulatory ecosystem is 100% table stakes at this point. If you're going to start a company in a highly regulated space, understanding who is regulating you, understanding how those policy change, how those policies change over time, understanding the whole mix of spaghetti there when it comes to the legal side of things is incredibly important. All right. Those are the three takeaways. There's a lot more. Uh, if you have any feedback, have any other thoughts, please tweet at me. Uh, you can get a hold of myself on Twitter at Zach Pettit. You can get hold of for fintech sake at for fintech sake on Twitter. You can find our website is just for fintech And if you want to get in touch with me personally, feel free to shoot me an email at zach.pettit and mbkc.com. And lastly, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, do all of the things in the little app that allow other people to discover us. I will be forever appreciative. And if I ever meet you, I will buy you a coffee or a beer uh, if you show me your review. Thank you so much and have a wonderful week.